If you brought your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Acts, chapter 2. In addition to being Memorial Weekend, Memorial Sunday, this is also, of course, the day of Pentecost. And um, before I go any, any farther in that regard, I do want to uh, thank those, all those who stepped up while we were gone. Uh, I know a lot of people took on extra responsibilities, but of course my attention uh, naturally goes to Scott and Chris, who filled in uh, the ministry of the word. Um, I really appreciate the excellent job they did, and I'm not saying that just so that I know the next time I want to go to Hawaii, they'll, they'll do it, right? That's, that's there. I mean, I'll, be, I'll own that. That's there. Um, but just because it's also a really good indication of a healthy church that we're able to supply the ministry needs even when people that have normally done it aren't there, right? And I really appreciated what they said. I did listen. I listened to the messages I did. Um, Scott talking about our intrinsic worth as, as children of God, as his creation, very much appreciated. Uh, Chris, what he said about the progressive revelation of God and his calling of his people and establishing his kingdom on earth because that really fits right in to what we've been talking about all year. The idea that what we're all about is Christ's character formed in us, that we can demonstrate Christ's character to the world. And um, it's our topic this morning as well. So again, I appreciate that very much. Our topic this morning is Pentecost Sunday. Um, it's the day when the church remembers the events of Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. As I have mentioned before, uh, the, the modern church, the Western church, has a somewhat confused relationship with this particular day. Um, some embrace it um, wholeheartedly. Some are a little bit cautious about it. Some uh, confusion uh, between the word Pentecost and Pentecostalism. And that's not meant to be a pejorative term at all. It's just those are two different things. And so the church has been a little bit confused in the last century or so. That wasn't the case in the early church. The early church greatly embraced the day of Pentecost. If you read uh, the reading of the writings of the early church fathers, it was second only to the celebration of the resurrection. Major event. And we're going to talk about why that is today. But we do need to focus on the events of this day because... The events of Acts chapter 2 are an essential part of biblical Christianity. It, it, what happened in Acts chapter 2 is not a, a, a bonus or an add-on. I used to say like electric windows, but now that's kind of standard, so I can't use that analogy anymore. Uh, I got in my brother-in-law's truck and I rolled the windows up and I rolled the windows down. It was so cool. But it's not an option. The events of the day of Pentecost represent an essential experience, an essential moment for the church. In Pentecost, we're talking about simply the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and collectively. And there is simply no authentic Christianity without it, right? And to that end, let's just go ahead and look at our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You probably know them well. I hope you read them this week. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that our hearts and minds would simply be open to its instruction for us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. My intent this morning is, is to talk about, cover this from, from three different points or three different thoughts. The first is to set some context. Now, we always like to do this, make sure that we understand the history, the language, if necessary, the geography, whatever it takes to get the full picture of what God's Word is saying. We always need to do this. But this morning, we're going to do it a little bit differently, just a little bit differently. I want to really focus in on the disciples' expectations. What were the thoughts what were the expectations of those believers sitting in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, you know, as the day started? What were, they, what were they looking forward to? What were they thinking? What was their thought? What was the thought of the Jewish people that filled Jerusalem that day? And I want to try, if we can, to get into their heads a little bit. And then the second thing is to talk about what happened and finally what it meant. What it meant to them and what it means to us. The indwelling of the Spirit. His power ministering through us. So let's take that approach. First of all, again, background. The disciples' expectation. They're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost because it is, of course, one of the three major Jewish feasts. The Feast of Shavuot, which I'm probably mispronouncing because I don't read Hebrew, but that's the best I got. Right? It is the Feast of Weeks. It is described in Leviticus 23, if you'd like to go back and read that. I really appreciated what Chris said. You referenced last Sunday, you referenced, or Sunday before, you referenced something in the law, and he said, if you want to know more about it, go read it. That was great. I love that. Okay, if you want to know more about it, read Leviticus 23. It's where it spells out this particular major feast. It was a feast of harvest. Now, it's called the Feast of Weeks because it occurred seven weeks from the day after Passover. So you count Passover one day, seven weeks, 49, 50 days. Hence the Greek name Pentecost, That was the Greek name for a Jewish festival. And it's all about celebrating the goodness of God. This was, a, this, was, this was a festival, one of the three major festivals that was all about celebration, okay? They had just finished the minor, the first minor spring harvest. It wasn't a huge harvest. It wasn't a huge moneymaker, but it was a lifesaver because this is a culture that is agrarian that lives largely from harvest to harvest. And you come through that long winter period with no harvest. And especially if you're an occupied nation, as they were, with really high taxes and an oppressive government that wants to grab all they can, right, that long winter could get pretty bad. Toward the end of that, things could get pretty skinny. And so this first harvest, even though it wasn't a huge harvest, was a lifesaver. So th this celebration first looked back at that harvest. And then it anticipated the really big harvest that starts the next day. The very next day, the day after this particular festival, they start the big harvest. And of course, that's on everybody's mind because this is one of those three festivals when all the, all the Jewish men you know, and their families, if they possible, could come to Jerusalem. They've been walking along the roads, and what have they been seeing along the roads? All of these fields ready to be harvested, right? So it's, it's a celebration that looks back in Thanksgiving, looks forward in anticipation. Now to that, in the tradition of the Jewish people, had been added one other element not found in Leviticus 23, but it's one other element, and that is they remembered the giving of the law at Sinai, which is really of a common theme. Just as God provided them bread, he had also provided them the law. So that's what's in everybody's mind as they go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, right? Day of celebration, thanksgiving, 
Acts anticipation, right? So we get to Acts chapter 2. The city is full of people, Jews, all coming to celebrate. That same sense of anticipation, same awareness, is in the minds of the disciples. Okay? They've been doing this feast for over a thousand years. They've been focusing on this issue, on these issues, on this day for more than a thousand. And that just doesn't go away. They're very conscious of that in Jerusalem, right? The celebration of a major festival. But they've also got, right, because Jesus has just ascended to the Father a few days before. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, 50 days later, and now Jesus has ascended to the Father. They, you have to add to all the things that the Jewish people were thinking of that day in this festival of harvest, you have to add the things that Jesus had said very specifically to them about this day, whether directly or indirectly. He'll talk about that just, just right now. I'm um, not going to talk about all the things Jesus said that would have pointed to this day or the, or the New Testament would have said. And we do need to mind, be mindful as we do this exercise, trying to get into the disciples' heads, that they have... Everything that happened in the Gospels, everything that happened in Acts chapter 1, that's it. We can't presume any of the knowledge or any of the thinking from the rest of the New Testament. Because, you know, they don't have it. You know, who's, who's Paul? Who's Saul? He's just the rising star in the Pharisees. He doesn't have anything to do with anything, right? None of that's been written. So all they have is what Jesus said in the Gospels or in chapter 1 of Acts, right? So let's just look at a, at a few of the verses that would have been in their minds on this day. Uh, start with Mark chapter 1, verse 8, the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said to the people, I baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John didn't say much more about it. He just said that. So that's in their thinking something of, of an emerge, immersion experience a complete, like, whole body experience is going to happen relative to the Holy Spirit. But no details beyond that, all right? Um, John chapter 16, verse 17. Here we have the Lord saying, but I tell you the truth, and this had to be a mind blower. I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. Yeah, right. You've got almost three years walking every day with the Lord. And each one of those days brought them closer to him, more dependent on him more aware of, how, of his importance. And now he said, i got great news for you. I'm going to leave. Oh, that's a hard sell. It's to your advantage that I go away. And I should note that word advantage is a word that means to bring things together. Right? It's going to come together for you when I go away. You're going to see things more clearly when I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper the comforter in some translations, the paraclete in others. The comforter or helper will not come to pass, but if I go, I will send him to you. Extraordinary statement. Whatever's going to happen regarding the Spirit, Jesus said, is going to be better than having me around. Wow. John chapter 20, verse 21, 22. Jesus said to them, and this was after the resurrection, when they were really confused about what was going on, and he suddenly appeared in their midst. He's just shown them the holes in his hands and feet. He says, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said that, he said this. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, a lot of ink has been spilt about exactly what happened at that moment when Jesus breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. And it's usually interpreted based on your other theological suppositions about what's going on at the time. But this is clear. Jesus identified the person of the Spirit and the reception, which is to say the welcoming and the embrace of, with the presence of he himself. You see, the word breath and the word spirit are the same word. You could just as easily translate that, that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the breath. Or you could just as easily translate it as saying, Jesus spirited on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same word. There's an identification of the Spirit with his very life. And he offered that to them and said, embrace it, welcome it, wrap your arms around it, make it a part of who you are. And then Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, again, the words of our Lord. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel, right? It's been all about the kingdom, all about the progressive development of the kingdom, as Chris pointed out the progressive development of the kingdom of God as he has revealed himself to his people, is that at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it's none of your business. How would you like to ask the Lord a question and get that for an answer, right? He said, uh, that's obviously not the exact words he used, right? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. It's all about empowerment. You will be empowerment. And please note this. This is really going to be critical as we get a little farther into this. He said, you shall be empowered to be witnesses. A lot of times in the church, we start thinking of ourselves in terms of, it's so important that I go out and witness. And then when we don't do it, we feel guilty about it. And, and we let that whole cycle of you know, guilt and inactivity get going. Jesus never told them, when you receive my spirit, you're going to go out and witness for me. He said, you shall, you shall be empowered by my spirit to be my witness. It's the exact same dynamic as we saw back in Luke in Mark chapter 4 with the whole fishers of men thing. Remember we pointed out that Jesus did not tell them, you're going to follow after me and, and I'm just going to change your gear. Because before you were fishing for salmon and now you're going to go for halibut. Right? Or whatever, you know. No. It's not before you fished for fish, now you're going to fish for men. I'm going to change your very being. The very essence of who you are he said back in Mark 4, was fishing for fish. Now your very essence is going to be fish for men, different kind of fishermen, right? Even here, he says, your essence will be one of witnessing. Your being, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, will be a being that bears a witness. That's what the day of Pentecost is all about, right? Jesus had told them to wait, right? Wait for this. So the disciples have these dual lines of expectation in their mind, right? I mean, and I know and acknowledge we can't read their minds. You don't know exactly what they were thinking. But I think it's pretty reasonable 
given what had happened over the last thousand years, given what Jesus had said, to say that in their minds there's these two trains of thought working. That of the Feast of Harvest, God's provision, and all that Jesus had told them about the anticipation of what the Spirit would do. So I'll look at what happened. Chapter 2, verse 1. The day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place. Um, I would suggest that that was already evidence of the spirits moving in their midst, the fact they were all there in agreement. You know, try to get a bunch of Jews together, get them all in agreement. Right? They're like Greeks like that. Very much so. I had a language teacher once tell me, two Greeks, ten opinions. I think you can apply that to the Jews just as well. So to get them there in accord, that, that's, that's the work of the Spirit right there. But suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and, they re- and it rested upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit's, Spirit gave them utterance. I don't know about you, but if I put myself there, I'm freaking out. I am. I mean, the wind that blew through the building was the kind of wind that that destroys things. We know about that here. We can relate to that. But normally it's outside of the house. Maybe it leaks in the house. This was exclusively inside the house. And then the air on top of their heads catches on fire. And then that fire specifically locates each one. I'm sorry if I'm them. I am really getting shook up, right? And then all of a sudden they find themselves, and it would, it would appear from the text, not necessarily of their own volition, not that they were resisting it, but this spontaneous articulation of languages they don't know. And if you know the story at all, the noise is heard out in the street. The crowd gathers. Again, their homes didn't have glass in the windows. The windows were open. It would be really easy for people outside to hear them. And, the, and remember, the city's full. Jerusalem's not a big city. And you pack the entire male population of the nation including the diaspora, though, and you part in that little city. The place is crowded. And these crowded streets hear this, this noise. What is it? It's, we hear voices. And so in verse 12, it says of the crowd, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What's the this? What's the this? What specifically are they referring to? Was it just the fact they were hearing you know, noises and voices and languages, or was it, was it something else? I think it was something else, right? Peter, we know, stands up at verse 14, begins to speak, taking his stand with the eleven, that's another manifestation of a change, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea, all who are in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. Some have suggested that. For it's only the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now listen carefully to this passage from Joel that Peter chose, by the direction of the Spirit, to cite in explanation of what they had just heard and the question they had asked, okay? And it shall be in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all humanity, on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young man, old, young man wow, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour forth of my Spirit. They shall prophesy. I'll grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a really good example 
of where it pays us to make the deliberate effort to see things through their eyes and not ours. Because we read something like this and we go, wow, what's that? What does it mean? And that, that the what is this, is much different for us than it was for them. And by seeing it through their eyes and asking the questions they would have asked, I think we get a completely different understanding. Because we read this and we see things like last days and prophecy and visions and wonders and signs and fire and smoke, darkness, blood, and great and glorious day of the Lord. And we go, what? I mean, even if you come from a Pentecostal background, some of this is still kind of outside the norm, right? You know, even if you're used to speaking in tongues on a daily basis, the blood, the fire, the vapor of smoke, that's a little beyond the pale, right? We look at that and we go, I don't understand what that is. That makes me really uncomfortable. What is that, right? They had a completely different reaction. Think carefully about each particular thing that Joel's prophecy talked about, right? This would be true for the disciples as well of those, as those outside, right? The reference to last days, they understand exactly what that means. That's the coming of the Messiah, which they've all been anticipating. They've all been looking for. They're all hoping for. That's, that's right in, in their wheelhouse. They got it, right? The prophecy, the visions, the dreams, the signs of wonder, right? Signs and wonders, they all point to one event. Remember, this is a community very much in touch with their history. Specifically instructed at Passover. Remember, this is part of the Jewish psyche we got to get into. Specifically instructed in the Passover Seder. If you've been through Seder, you know this. Specifically instructed in the Passover Seder to regard themselves as if they came out of Egypt when their ancestors did more than a thousand years before. They are to see themselves as being participants in the Exodus experience. They've got a much more communal worldview than we do, and they have a long-term worldview. Right? So that's the first place they're going to look when they hear this. And I would suggest that everything in Joel's prophecy takes them right back to that Passover experience. Prophecy. Who was the, who was the prophet? Moses. Visions. Signs. Wonders. Signs and wonders. Who's that? Moses. The vision of the burning bush. Moses. The signs and wonders performed in Pharaoh's presence. Moses. Blood, fire, billows of smoke. Moses, miracles, signs, deliverance, right? The sun turned into darkness, the ninth plague. Exodus chapter 10. The great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the angel of death in their thinking. Everything in Joel's prophecy specifically oriented itself in the Exodus experience. Why is that critical? It is because I would suggest that the Exodus experience, God's deliverance of the Jews from the bondage to Egypt, his provision for them, including the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the passing over of the people of Israel, their deliverance through the Red Sea, that is as critical in defining them as a people as the death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection is to us. 
The things which we celebrate on Easter are the things that define us as a people. The things that the Jew celebrates on Passover are what define them as a people. Prior to Passover, they're just another bunch of people, slaves in Egypt. They're not identified as the people of God. No, it's Passover that does that. So everything that happens in Joel's prophecy takes them back to their identification as the people of God. What's gonna, what has just happened in the upper room is an evidence, as Peter will go on to say, to what identifies us as the people of God. It's a new game. It's a new reality. And if you've read Acts chapter 2, and I strongly encourage you to read it again if you haven't, Peter goes on to explain that the very things they have seen happening in their midst are an evidence of the reality of who Jesus was. This same Jesus who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And the outpouring of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit's power is simply proof of that. There's only two things in that whole prophecy of Joel that don't immediately resonate with the Jewish mind. The first line and the last line. They don't resonate. Those, the first line and the new line, they're as new and as radical to the Jewish mind as the rest of the stuff is to us. The first line reads this way. It shall be in the last days I will pour out of my spirit on all mankind. Literally all flesh. Now one of the things the Jewish scholars like to do is any reference in the Old Testament to all flesh is to talk about all, all Israel. Or any reference to, to, Jesus, to the Son of God. That's not Jesus, that's the nation of Israel. To, conf, to confine these statements to, the, per, to the, the nation of Israel, you can't make this just the nation of Israel because it is literally all human flesh. It's an absolute statement. And then there's the last line. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just as the events of Passover changed the dynamic of the people of Israel completely, not just a new identity, but a new, pur new purpose. So the events of the day of Pentecost change the identity of the people of God, the church, and create a whole new purpose. There's not a single reference anywhere prior to the day of Pentecost to any member of the apostolic band going out and telling some Gentile about their faith. But after that, that is the purpose for the apostolic band, is to tell the Gentiles the wonders of Christ. It all points back to Egypt and the Exodus, the single event that identifies Israel as the people of Passover, the Exodus experience defining Israel as the people of God, as the crucifixion and resurrection define us. And with a new identity for the people of Israel came a new identity for us. So the believers, at least as far as Peter is concerned, speaking by the power of the Spirit, the believers see a new beginning just as Exodus was a new beginning. And we can take that comparison as far as you want about the whole Jewish experience of coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, coming into the promised land. And you can apply that to the church. I think it's a pretty solid comparison, right? But that first line and that last line, I will pour out my spirit on all people, all flesh. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The message is unmistakably clear the exclusivity that has characterized the people of God is over. The exclusivity that the Jewish nation held was over. 
the exclusivity that the priests held is over. The exclusive, every exclusivity based on a human distinction, whether race, male, female, young, old, rich or poor, even the slaves, those distinctions are gone. Man, that is so different than what we hear in this world. We hear so much discussion, obviously, in our contemporary culture about inclusiveness, right? But what are the issues over which this, this so much noise is being made, right? Who gets to use which bathroom? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the exclusivity of access to the one true God. And that exclusivity is gone. And what is inclusive is access to the one true God. All human flesh now has access to the Father through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is radically different than what the world is telling us. What the world is selling is falsehood. And it's trivial compared to this. This is access for all flesh. An equality before God that wasn't there before. So what's the application of that for us? Well, I would suggest that you can do, look at it two ways. A theological level and then a practical level. Uh, the theological level, salvation. There is no salvation without the Spirit. The Spirit of God is, is an essential person in salvation. His presence, His work, His power, His indwelling, and that is why believers are called saints. Even the ones in Corinth, as messed up as they were, they're called saints. That word means holy ones. And we, we're not, we don't get to be holy without the Holy Spirit, right? Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You don't even get saved without the Holy Spirit. We're empowered and equipped by the Spirit of God. That's Ephesians. Again, what did he say back in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The power that the presence of the Holy Spirit brings in our lives is for an effective witness, to make us to be effective witnesses. The ch and this is a change. This is a change in outlook for many Christians. From simple mental agreement with the doctrines and teachings of Christ, that's fine, mental acquiescence to what Jesus taught, to living no longer for our purposes, but for his purposes. Living no longer by our breath, but by his. At a practical level, it's, it's, it's essential that we understand we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Every believer has the Spirit of God living within him or her. Because you know, the truth of the matter is, without the day of Pentecost, we literally cut off the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yeah, my, my, my debts are paid. My sins are forgiven, but there's no life in me. The new life that I, that I walk in is strictly a product of the Spirit dwelling within me. For I, without that, I'm just a forgiven dead guy. That's all there is to it. It's absolutely essential that we receive the Spirit, and that simply means to welcome and embrace His presence, His work. And I only say His because He's not an it. We say we say his presence to identify him as person. Holy Spirit doesn't have gender. He's not male or female, but he's person. So I don't want to say it. We receive his work. It's absolutely essential that we allow him to express the person of Christ 
to the world. And that's why the scripture encourages us to seek spiritual gifts, but to speak spiritual gifts that edify the church. Everything that we seek of the Spirit, and we're told to seek of the Spirit, seek those gifts which edify the church. We're told to seek, but seek the gifts that build the church up. Do you want to pray in tongues? Ask Him for it. I do. Anybody here ever hear me? None of y'all ever hear me pray in tongues. Why? I do it in private. Because that's what edifies the church. You stand up in a public worship service and speak in tongues, what does Paul say about that? The world will think you're nuts. And what does he say in the next line? Read it in Corinthians. They're right. He says they're right to think you're nuts to do that in church. I think it's going to do some good. No. But when I pray for this body in private, I do. Right? You want to pray that way? Ask him. And then start praying. See what happens. But that isn't the only spiritual gift. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts, and each one of them equals service. One way or another, each one of them equals service, which is exactly why I began with saying thank you to Scott and to Chris for speaking while I was gone. And it wasn't just so that we could go to Hawaii or go again. It's because it represents a healthy, strong church that we can effectively minister to our own body, our own needs. That's a representation of the Spirit, whether we know it or not, right? Nothing draws the world out of darkness like the manifestation of the Spirit of God through us. Christ's character formed in us, Christ's character shown to the world, right? Like I said, nothing makes Christians more nervous, even more nervous than speaking in tongues is evangelism. Oh my God, I have to talk to people about Jesus, right? How many would say, I, you don't have to raise your hands? I know the answer. I really struggle to share my faith with people. It's really hard. I get embarrassed. I don't know what to say, right? I've got a really good suggestion. If you feel like God is telling you, you really need to share your faith, but you're like, I don't want to. I'm scared, right? I've got a great, great opportunity for you. It's called Children's Church. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I am dead serious. First of all, I say, well, I don't know my Bible well enough. You start teaching Children's Church, you will. It's a survival skill, right? <laughs> Whoa. You find out how much you don't know. Those kids can be murdered, right? But, you know, what if I say something that's wrong and then they'll laugh at me? Yeah, they will. They can be brutal. But there's a real blessing in teaching children's church. They've got really short memories. <laughs> they do. You can totally screw up one week and then you get a couple breaks, weeks break for the, for, you know, for the rotation. You come back. You know, they may remember, oh, yeah, they said something really funny. I don't remember, but they're not going to know. They're not going to this idiot doesn't know. God has blessed them with a really short memory, right? That is but one example where the choice to serve, that's what I'm talking about, the choice to serve. So whether it's in your own prayer life, seeking ways to strengthen the body through prayer, and you find yourself speaking in, in a language you didn't know, like, okay, that was cool. Praise God for that. I'll keep going, you know, and then leave it there. Right? Um, I don't know how many people in this congregation pray in tongues. I don't want to know. Um, but I do know how many serve in whatever capacity you serve. And that is incredibly encouraging to me. And in case, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. In case you don't think that simple acts of service are a manifestation of the Spirit of God, consider this. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I've been saving this in our study of Mark. I haven't shared this one with you yet. But the, uh, the people that really study the scripture in depth, most of them would tell you that Mark 10, 45 is the most important verse in Mark. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. His commitment to serve was an expression of his character. Our commitment to serve, whether it is through our prayers, whether it is through our involvement in the local body of believers, whether it's through taking a deep breath and sharing your faith with your neighbor, whether it's the effort to do what you do need to do to learn how to do those things. See, the fact that it's a spiritual gift doesn't mean it comes automatically or you don't have to put any effort into it. There are things you can do to learn to share your faith. Those are important. There are things you can do to learn how to teach a children's church class, right? Or whatever else it might be. We have our, we have our, our work to do. We have our homework. But when we allow the Spirit of God to manifest himself through us, his character is seen by the lost and dying world. Service is the essence of the character of Christ. The challenge is to find out how each one of us can individually best do that. How can I serve is the question. That's the question of Pentecost. How can I serve? I just invite you to stand as the worship team comes back. and um, just want to take a few extra minutes this morning. I know I went longer than usual. Uh, just to ask you to take some time in the privacy of your own heart to say, Lord, what are you calling me to? What are you calling my family to? Lord, what can I do to put myself in the place where my life better manifests the character of God? That's a question we need to ask continually our entire lives. Many times with different seasons in our life, he calls us to different things. Lord, I think of the prophet who simply said, Lord, here I am, send me. We want to have that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude. To that end, Father, we're grateful that we're Father, we're in such a better place than your saints of old were. We think about, you know, like, like Saul and, and uh, who the Spirit came upon, but when the Spirit left was the, was the same old guy. And Samson, who when the Spirit came upon him, did great things, and after he left, he was the same old Samson. Father, we are in such a better place your spirit abiding, dwelling, living within us, Father. We want to be responsive to that reality. Without that reality, Father, we have nothing to offer this world. Not a one of us. But with that, Lord, the very power of the person of character of Christ is there. Give us hearts and minds to hear you. Jesus' name. Amen. Any, you have any questions or any thoughts about anything I just said this morning, please uh, ask me. Ask me after service. Call me during the week. I love when people call and they say, Pastor, you said something on Sunday I don't get. Or even, you said something on Sunday I don't buy.
I'll have that, I'll have that discussion too. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Let's worship him.